Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today's conversation will be a wide-ranging one and will deliver you insights into positioning within the asset class against the current macro backdrop and the consideration of what the balance of the year might have in store for broader markets. Uh, joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome back Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy Americas from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Leslie Falconio, as well as Dwight Scott, the Global Head of Credit for Blackstone. Leslie, Dwight, looking forward to hearing your conversation. Thank you both for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. Uh, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Dwight. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. And Dwight, thank you so much for joining us again. For, for those of you that, that, that have followed our, our Fixed Income Corner podcast are well aware that we've had the pleasure to have Dwight on and, and his opinions and his opinions from Blackstone, and we've had some very good feedback, and it's always really great to hear his insights and outlook. So, Dwight, thanks you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here, Leslie. It's great to be back. Great. So, listen, I wanted to start off with, let's just start off with some, you know, let's look at more of a, of a bigger picture in terms of, let's just say, the alternatives market. We know that the, the alternative market has witnessed substantial growth over the past year and years. And so when you look at sort of how we see performance variables ahead or how you see demand going forward, from that big picture, picture perspective, like how do you envision growth over the next year? And particularly if you could just, you know, sort of relate this to how it might affect private credit. Yeah, so that, that's a good question. It's interesting. I was in a meeting of uh, with a bunch of Blackstone shareholders earlier today, and, and th- there was a question in that discussion that was very similar to this, which is, which was really around the concept of, uh, you know, with with rates being being um, moving higher, is there going to be a shift away from alternatives to more traditional, um, you know, capital markets? So, so I want to start at the very high level. Um, remember, for the last you know 40 years, as we've had these falling rates, we've had the, this rate wind at our back, if you will, we have created a lot of different products in the private markets. In the very early stages of that period, private equity was still young. Um, Blackstone wasn't even around yet um, 40 years ago. It's 35 years old or so now. So private equity grew dramatically during that period. That's what we used to talk about mostly when we talked about private markets. And then private credit began to grow rapidly. Um, obviously, leverage loans grew, high yield grew. High yield was probably two hundred billion dollars back in the '80s, and today it's a trillion five in the U.S. alone. Same with leverage loans; they really didn't exist back then in any meaningful way. They have grown to a trillion five, and the private credit market's grown to probably a trillion five as well. So, there are a lot more places to go in the credit space than there would have been back in those days. And the, and 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 I happen to think that what's ha- what's going to what we're all going to start paying attention to as rate, as the rate movement is in our face, not at our back. In other words, where we see tightening um, equity multiples, where we see higher rates impacting returns of fixed income, uh, duration returns of fixed income, we're going to all be focused on places where we think we can create alpha because we've been able to just invest in the market for the last 10 years at least and have beta work for us. I think you're going to start focusing on alpha, and I think private markets will benefit from that. I think private equity will benefit that from that because private equity investors have historically outperformed the market, and they do things. They add value to companies. I think people will start to think of that as a, as a, as 
important, more important when, when the overall market is not going up and to the right every year. And then I think the same thing with private credit, where we can have a little lower default rates, a little lower loss given default, um, a higher base return. Uh, certainly, um, most of what you see in the private credit markets is a floating rate product, so it gets the benefit of these higher rates rather than uh, rather than suffering from the duration price decline. So I, I think we'll continue, Leslie, to see growth. It may be in a little different place. If you watch the history of like a, of a Blackstone, if we were just a private equity firm like we would have been 15 years ago, it would be a little bit harder question. The fact that many of the larger private equity firms now have different strategies, different products, that will benefit in these periods, even though some of the products may not see as, as much growth as they've seen, uh, you know, over over the last 20 years. Well, let's let's focus a bit on that 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 interest rate component that you mentioned, and and you know, one of the things that that we think about going forward, and you know, obviously this relates particularly to the fixed income side and the private credit side. You know, we've had interest rates rise more than likely. The Fed has been fairly steadfast with price stability, and there's a high probability, we don't know for sure, that the Fed funds rate will continue at a fairly aggressive path higher, you know, therefore borrowing rates are going to increase and so forth. So when we think about where valuations are now, and granted, they're, you know, a little cheaper than where they were from the beginning of the year, like like, a, like every other sector, particularly in June, we had, we had a lot of headwinds and a, lot, a bit of a pocket of vulnerability when it came to the returns of some of these sectors. But how do you see this sort of this, this outcome going forward in terms of the economy, in terms of borrowing costs, and more importantly, you know, defaults, which we know are coming from a very low base. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll touch on just the broad, broader credit markets that we play in and then and circle back around to that. Um, I do think that what's hap- what happened particularly in June um, and what has been happening in fixed income for out, throughout 2022, what happened in June in loans and what happened throughout the year in, in uh, fixed income is are all really what I kind of think of as technical factors. Rising rates certainly have been hurting duration products, as you know quite well, as all your, client, all your um, partners know quite well. Um, and, and loans sort of hung in there for a long time. They didn't have the negative outflows that you saw in high yield for much of the year. High yield... You know, it's what fifty billion dollar plus of outflows this year. Leverage loans still have fifteen billion of net inflows during the year, so leverage loans stayed, you know, stayed floating up above the market for much of the year until we really moved into the second half of the second quarter. And what you saw there, and, and it's really interesting, if you follow press mentions of two things, if you listen, if you follow press mentions of rising rates versus press mentions of recession. You saw a lot more discussion about rising rates through the first five months of the year, and all of a sudden the discussion started to move to recession. You can almost track that to the funds flow starting to then turn and come out of leveraged loans, and the loan market, which had been holding in there around 98, fell to 92. So you had a high yield trading at 85 by late June. Um, You had loans trading at 92. And you had the banks who had been underwriting in that more benign environment now hung on a number of deals that weren't going to clear the, the market at the price that they had underwritten them. So you couldn't bring new deals to high yield. That's been true for much of the year. All of a sudden now you can't bring new deals um, easily to the loan markets, to the leverage loan markets, and the banks are hung. So the, the liquid opportunity for financing started to fall away. And, and, and then, and I would say, that technical pressure is very 
is very different from the fundamental backdrop. You mentioned last year was a very benign default year. Even with a, a bit of an uptick this year, defaults on the last 12 months in high yield and loans are probably 1.1%. Recoveries are quite high in the 60% kind of range. So loss given defaults and still inside of 50 basis points. And there are other things that make me confident on the fundamental market backdrop for defaults. Now, I think we're going to go into a more challenging economic environment, which will put pressure on everything. But I think from a credit standpoint, particularly a default standpoint, there's some really um, offsetting things. First of all, 2021 was the most active year ever by a significant margin in private equity activity. What that means is that a lot of transactions in the leveraged loan market and the, and the private credit market are brand new. They have new equity coming in. They have new liquidity facilities that have been put in place in the last year. Um, they have new delayed draw term loans. They have all these things that provide flexibility if we go into a market correction um, you know, over the next 12 months. In addition, a lot of the weakness in the market was kind of pushed out in 2020 when we had the COVID downturn. We had a significant increase in defaults at that point. Those companies have been restructured. They're cleaner, they're prettier, they're healthier, um, or they're gone. So you, you have – and then – one other thing just to highlight is you, you know, if you go back to 2007 when we went through this, you know, a, a big downturn uh, in 0809, in 2007 the average LBO was 67% loan to value. In, in 2021, the average LBO was about 50% loan to value. In our portfolio, it was about 43% loan to value because we were focused on higher quality companies. That is a defensive fundamental outlook in my mind. You don't have big maturities in front of you. You know, all the things that, that, you know, create that wall of worry about fundamental issues, we don't really see right now. So I would say from our standpoint, you know, just in, once again, I'll, I'll move away from the market a little bit and into the, the, the world that we live in. Um, what, that, what that technical pressure means is because issuers can't go to the public markets, they're turning to the private markets. And... And what often happens when you find yourself in that situation is the deal flow just stops because nobody can, can you know, cross a trade. That's not true right now. Private equity had a great year last year. They're raising a bunch of money this year, and they are seeing market opportunities, particularly in the public markets, where stocks are off on average 23% from their highs. So we are seeing real, real activity in a market that, that we become you know, one of the primary sources of capital, which generally works better for us. So let, let's talk about that for a second, because I do want to hone in on a couple of things that you mentioned. Let's, one of the biggest things are, let's just talk about that deal flow, right? What's the ability that, you know, we have to, you know, do these deals in terms of the LBL space. And we know, as you pointed out, you know, things like high yield, you know, has, has had a bit of a more of a, a barrier in the sense that we know it supplies down, what's between 70 and 80% year over year. Like when you say like the, the flow of the market that you've been able to see in some of this private credit, what, what type, of, a, what type of numbers I would say, I, like, are you talking about in terms of, you know, this year, say, compared to the last year, compared to the last three? And the second being is, you know, when we think about some of these barriers to entry or we think about some of these drivers just in, in loans at all, I mean, we know that the senior loan market has been, you know, a, a big player in terms of like the loans and senior loans in particular. But, you know, how do you see that playing out going forward, whether it's, you know, in terms of the arbitrage that can be created, whether it is the placement of a lot of these higher quality tranches, if you will, that go to insurance companies, and how might that impact either the uh, performance or the flow going forward? Well, there's a lot in that, Leslie. Uh, so let me, I'm going to 
start down that path, and, and will you pull me back into the right place if I don't answer the question, um, the full questions, because there's a lot in there, and it's, it's, it's very interesting um, at the moment. So first of all, on flow, on you know, deal activity, it was impossible. It was never going to be true that 2022 looked anything like 2021 from a new deal activity uh, standpoint. M&A was at all-time highs last year. The market was on fire. There was all kinds of liquidity. Interest rates were zero. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was the, the most active year we've all seen. We had the, the most active investment period in the fourth quarter of 2021 that we've ever had in, in Blackstone Credit. So we weren't going to have 2021 again in 2022, even if the Fed hadn't stepped in and put their foot on the brake. So we expected the market to trail off a little bit as a whole. But what was happening underneath that market, that broad market, was a shift, in, in, and I'm going to circle, this is more about private credit, there was a shift away from the liquid markets, from leverage loans and high yield, towards private credit, particularly for larger transactions. So if you look in the period of time before 2021, so you know 2020 and, and years before that, there were only about six deals that were done in the private markets that were above a billion dollars. That started to change in 2021. We think we were a big part of that change uh, with our approach to, to private credit. We wanted to be in bigger companies, better sponsors, better sectors. Since 2021, there have been um, 51 transactions above a billion dollars, and and we have seen that sh we we have about a 50 percent market share leading those those larger transactions. That shift continues, and we we see that shift continuing in 2022. The reason that's important is if you put those two trends together, so a slower market in 2022, but more movement to the larger transactions, what you would see from us is we are seeing um, more of the flow in private credit because they can't, the issuers can't get, to the, can't get to the liquid markets and they need to come to the private markets and they're, they're, they've become accustomed to doing larger deals in the private market. So we're seeing quite good flow. The second most active quarter we've ever had investing was the second quarter of 2022. So um, from a, from a insider's baseball, we're seeing good flow uh, in the market today, not because the overall market flow is the same. It's down, you know, I think between 40 and 50 percent from last year, but because a lot of it has to push its way through the private markets. Now, on the public side, so you asked the question about CLO formation. As I said, you know, it felt like loans were going to skate through this early in the year. The floating rate nature of the loans is very protective of these rising rates and is actually quite attractive in these rising rate environments. And the senior secured nature of leveraged loans, you know, gives you some comfort that if you're wrong about the economy and the economy gets worse, you're in, a, in the right part of the capital structure. So we saw that really supported through the first five months of the year. It, the funds flows really pushed it down. Um, it, it's not some fundamental thing that happened. It's the fact that we had funds flows pushing prices down. We had one day, by the way, we manage a big ETF for loans. We had one day where there were something like 500 million of outflows across liquid, you know, liquid loan uh, products, and that pushed prices down like a point and a half. So it's a little bit of it's a when I say technical, it's really a technical pressure. It's not necessarily some fundamental thing. So we saw that happen. CLO formation slowed. Um, it had been slow already for the year, but it slowed further. Um, it is, you know, you can still put CLOs together. We're, we're kind of about, we're, we're at a 
a less of a less of a pace than last year, but not terribly less of a pace than last year. Uh, but you have to do things like static CLOs and and be more creative in what you bring to the market. From our standpoint, in both of those places, private cre credit and and the and the leverage loan CLO market, we have positioned our portfolios for years now as higher quality, and and therefore in the private side we haven't done particularly in our direct lending strategies we haven't gone junior in the capital structure because we knew this day was coming and we felt like if we could get the returns for our investors by being by being senior we'd be better off so we're now seeing that benefit same thing with our CLO business we we tend to be higher quality portfolios and those portfolios are more resilient and because that's our positioning in the market, it allows us to get back into the market with new issues sooner than if we were, um, you know, more of a high-octane kind of manager. All right. That was, that was actually a, a fantastic answer. I know, we threw, I know I threw a lot at you, but you actually answered it really well, and that was, that was very interesting. Thank you for that. You know, I, I kind of want to feed off that and, and just go towards, again, when we think about, you know, performance overall going forward, which is obviously there's, this is just a going concern, and, and as you mentioned, it's not just for this side of the credit sector, but it's a lot, it's many facets of the economy in terms of, you know, relative value going forward and, and potential risks or fear if you, if, you know, that investors might or believe could actually occur, you know, given the fact there's just such an unknown and what path or how aggressively the Fed may act from now until, say, the end of the first quarter of 23. But, I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, some of your funds with a 43% LTV, you know, which is very strong. You know, how do you – so, two questions. One, when we think about the breakout, right, I mean, a lot of these type of funds, are, and specifically on the loan side, is, is more tech. You think of, like, high yield being more correlated with, say, like, oil, um, some of those might be more tech-based. I mean, how sort of do you look at, one, the diversification, and two, and again, I mean, you already pointed out the LTV of your fund, but how do you, how do you think about it, or how do you think about the, the market overall? What do we think, we think about these defaults going forward? I'll start with the market overall, and then I'll tell you how we think about building a portfolio within our world. So just to... Just to give you a couple of data points, I mean, you know, the market is not telling you to be worried about a default cycle right now. Bonds and loans trading at default levels, so that's defined as bonds trading below, this high-yield bonds, trading below 70 and loans trading below 80, There's that's they're less than 4% of the combined of the market overall. So the market's not telling you a big default cycle is coming. On average, historically, when, when you have, when, when loans and bonds are trading below uh, 80 and 70, respectively, about half of those, that portfolio defaults in the next 12 months. So even if half of this portfolio defaults in the next 12 months, it's somewhere right inside of 2% defaults, and, um, and and your recovery rates, you know, let's, let's even assume that it's lower recoveries than historical average, so let's say it's 50%, you're still at a 1% loss. And that's against a portfolio that right now high yields yielding 8% and loans are yielding 9%. So even if that comes true and you have a 1% loss, you buy the port the market, you don't make any good credit decisions, you're still in a pretty good defensive position from my standpoint. And if defaults are higher, it means the economy is weaker, which means you're probably glad you weren't in equities. You know, it, it, it's still going to be a defensive place to be. The way we think about building a portfolio in the context of always being worried that the world is going to be worse than we think. You know, it is the world where credit investors, nobody 
you know, comes and says, I owe you par, I'm deciding to give you 120% of par because you're a good person. So we worry about loss of principle. That's what we spend all of our time thinking about. We, we try to be in the right sectors. So our highest concentration software, um, it's not that we think software has no risk. Software does have risk. It, this just tends to be more cash flow generative. It has longer protective value through the IP and through the contract, contracts with customers. And it tends to be a lower loan to value because the sponsors are paying very high multiples for it. So we like being in those markets. We like healthcare. We like business, business and professional services. Those kind of places where we feel like we are defensive. We then assume, of course, that we're wrong about that. And we then want to make sure we have a highly diversified portfolio. That matters a lot. Um, we, so we want to have that highly diversified portfolio. And then finally, we like bigger deals because those bigger companies, especially if they're in the right sectors, have more resilience. They have a broader base of customers, a broader base of products. If things go wrong, like supply chain issues, which are hitting a lot of companies right now, if they go wrong, then those companies are more resilient and the sponsors tend to be more supportive. Um, so that, that's kind of how we think about building a portfolio in the face of a market that might get weaker. And, and that is obviously quite topical right now. But, but if you lived in our world, which you do live in our world, um, you would assume, and I, I, I bet most of the people on this phone assume this, that there's going to be a challenging market at some point in the not-too-distant future, and they build portfolios to be um, uh, awful about that. So when, when you think about this, Wade, and, you know, we have a lot of black sound, um, you know, on our platform, but you are the, the, the global head of credit, right? So when we think about relative value, let's, let's expand it out a, a bit, you know, Going forward, like where do you see the best relative on a global basis? I'd really be interested in hearing your thoughts about that. Uh, I'll answer that question specifically in credit. Um, uh, I would say um, I think at the moment the U.S. market is the most defensive market from my standpoint. Uh, the economic um, outlook is, while it's not benign, I would say the outlook is cloudy. Um, it is. It feels that it because of the because of the strong dollar because of the um, strong economy, the size of the economy, it feels like the U.S. is going to be in a reasonably good position and going to recover more quickly than some other markets. Europe, I think in long term, is going to be a great place to be. I think there's going to be all, uh, a lot of options to grow in Europe in, in the credit business and to make good investments because it's an emerging, still is a, a smaller market than the U.S. It is growing. You're seeing more private equity move into the market. You're seeing more uh, financing alternatives available to, to issuers. So I'm long-term optimistic. I'm short-term nervous. Uh, the, the, the exposure to commodity prices is uniquely poor in the European markets, and it's uniquely poor in some of the stronger European economies. So we're being a little cautious in putting capital to work there. We still will see good opportunities, and, and most of the companies that we are investing in in Europe have broad worldwide operations. Asia's a little harder. Uh, you, you know, People on the phone know this, but but it has been a, the, the the markets in Asia as disrupted as they have been in the U.S. They've been more disrupted across Asia and certainly in China. So I think that's that's a place where once again it's hard not to see long-term growth, long-term opportunities, and we are building out our team there for just that reason. But as it relates to new issue, new opportunities right now, we're being cautious. You can you know it's almost shocking to see the likely losses in the real estate development world in China. It's, it, so 
you're just having to be a little cautious right now, I think, in that market. Well, Dwight, again, I mean, I know this is this is the third or fourth podcast you, got, you and I have had together. And again, I really appreciate your time. You know, it's been spending time with CIO. We always have a really great discussion whenever you're on. And, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue and the relationship going forward. Thanks, Leslie. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.